The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, this is Jack Wilson. Another Mike Palindrome special episode is coming up, David Foster Wallace, Part 2, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, especially all of you David Foster Wallace fans. You have a champion here at the History of Literature podcast, Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who is going to guide you through all things David Foster Wallace, other than Infinite Jest. That book will have its own episode at some point in the future. Mike is a huge David Foster Wallace fan. You will be in good hands. But before I turn things over, let's hear from a listener. As always, these are genuine emails from some of the most genuine people on the planet. I'm always amazed by the emails I get, how heartfelt and sincere they are. I am truly honored and grateful by the emails I receive and by the support the show receives. Over there at patreon.com slash literature. Recently... Speaking of support, recently we were listed by Feedspot as the number one literature podcast to subscribe to and listen to in 2019. Some of you may recall the old days when this little show was stuck at number four on iTunes in the literature category, and the top three spots were all filled by shows devoted to Harry Potter. Well, apparently, Feedspot is not a fan of the little wizard. (laughs) I'm sure J.K. Rowling is weeping all the way to the Harry Potter-themed amusement park. Shouldn't even make jokes about her, actually. I'm headed to Scotland this summer, and I wouldn't want to stir up any of the locals. And I actually do think she's awesome. Not just an incredible writer, but a high-quality person. We are lucky to have her here on planet Earth. She's been a great gift to the world. Thank you, J.K. Rowling. There we go. (laughs) See how that works? I try to give myself a little pat on the back and end up praising the richest and most successful and most famous and most popular writer on Earth. Very typical Jack Wilson behavior, but oh well, that's fine. Others can feast. I'm happy with a couple of crumbs. So... On to the email. Speaking of crumbs, this is a little more than crumbs. This is a nice little dessert, a tasty tart. This is from listener Ted. Dear Jack, listening to your podcast is like listening to the Vince Guaraldi Trio's A Charlie Brown Christmas Album or arriving at church before anyone else. <laughs> Very nice. We're off to a good start. Oh, flattered. I email continues, I accidentally read the 2012 edition of the Cambridge Introduction to Modernist Poetry, (laughs) accidentally read, and was looking for more information about Ezra Pound when I came across your podcast. I would have taken any hack talking about the poet for an hour or so, but I was lucky enough to hear about your illness, how you could hardly move, and how sorry you were that the Halloween episode hadn't been posted yet. I just got deja vu. Have I read this letter already? 
Ah, uh, if I have my apologies, it came across. It's worth reading twice. It's a good one. Goes on. I've devoured many other episodes since then and fell in love with the podcast when I heard the one on bad poetry. I showed it to my wife, and now mine tongue and thy brain are household phrases. Not to make fun of you, <laughs> sure. Not to make fun of you, Jack, but to celebrate your childlike appreciation of John Keats. There's something about hearing you have to pause while reading your earliest work or having to stifle your laughs that makes me want to cheer you on. I admit that after hearing this episode, I tried to read some of my old poetry to my wife and couldn't. Rereading those lines gave me the sensation that rises in your chest before getting into a... (laughs) Got a little choked up. Let me try again. Rereading those lines gave me the sensation that rises in your chest before getting into a car crash. There was a moment a couple of years ago, fueled by loneliness and an unfamiliar habitat, when I piled all the books I owned into a pile. I threw them and pulled them off the shelves. I tossed them from the windowsill and hurled them from the end tables until they were amassed, half open, and been shut with twisted spines on my small gray apartment floor. It was the most agnostic I've ever been in regard to the inherent value in literature. I was sobbing and heaving and had to ask myself whether those pages were important or if reading them was just an exercise in narcissism. It felt like one of those where-is-your-God moments. It was a reality check long overdue. I've known plenty of people who don't read. If you ask them what the last book they read was, they'll they'll say just that, I don't read. More than that, I know that these people get along fine. There's no urgent need for literary insight or a mythic revelation they'll find in the back of an anthology of poems. The world of academic committees and writers' retreats and, as as Ezra Pound would say, the literati, is not mine. So the opportunity to discuss Mom or Irving or Frost is stupid rare. I want to thank you for creating a space to inspect and feel and sometimes brood over literature. It's a space where the people can remember the last book they've read, and a space where I'm not intimidated by the excessively intelligent. The pile of books has since been cleaned up and organized. I've moved, gotten married, gotten a new job, but I still ask why they matter. A highly personal and ambiguous question that would warrant a many-footnoted essay. I don't have the vocabulary or years of experience to write an essay like that, but you and Mike and your podcast have helped me take a shot at the abstract. Idly, Ted. P.S. A soft-spoken host of a podcast about literature is the last person I'd expect to have a penchant for satanic worship in the 70s. But you've proved my intuition wrong. Enjoy your coffee, Jack. That's... That's the end of the letter. That's referring to the virtual coffees that one can purchase over at historyofliterature.com slash shop. If anyone is interested in throwing a few coins my way, you can pay with a credit card or PayPal account. Thank you, Ted, for your letter. My apologies to everyone if I've read it twice. I kind of suspect that I have. But boy, what a letter that was. It is... uh, gives you a lot to think about. (laughs) I want to note one thing. Yes, I did humiliate myself with my childlike appreciation of John Keats. 
But also, I'm not sure I ever said I had a penchant for satanic worship in the 70s. Although now, three and a half years of doing this show, I've lost track of some of the things I've said. Maybe I did babble that on. Some of these these episodes I record at four in the morning sometimes might not have my full brain (laughs) engaged. I think what I was talking about was how fascinated I was looking back that there was a stretch in the 80s where all of the people I went to high school with were reading the Satanic Bible. That was a fad. Was that just in my little town? There was some some rumors of of sacrifices and things going on out in the cornfields. But I thought maybe it was just sort of a harmless thing, kind of a an adolescent rebellion thing. A lot of people went to church in my town. There were a lot of churches, also a lot of taverns, which is worship of another kind. But there were a lot of churches there, and I felt like some of the people I went to high school with were maybe rebelling against that just a little bit. Or they were curious, or they were they liked shocking people, just like it was shocking to grow long hair and wear Motley Crue t-shirts and do that kind of thing and read the Satanic Bible and see what was in it. But, as most religious people know, the opposite of religious feeling, the opposite of God, is worshiping Satan. It shows you're still a believer, in some sense. Not the same as being an atheist. No atheist would be interested in the Satanic Bible, right? They don't believe in Satan either. I think that's the point. Anyway, we're off the track. Let's get to David Foster Wallace. We'll have Mike Palindrome coming up here. And here's what we're going to do. We'll take a quick break, and then we'll move on to David Foster Wallace, as brought to you by our old friend, El Presidente, Mike Palindrome. grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
Hello listeners, Mike Palindrome back again, uh, here for part two of David Foster Wallace. Um, we're going to continue talking about everything other than Infinite Jest, and slight correction, there will be a part three, which deals with Infinite Jest. So let's let's return to one of the great, uh, his great motivators, David Foster Wallace's, his desire to engage the world um, beyond his world of friends, family, and perhaps more importantly, and certainly more of a challenge, people who who don't agree with you, don't share your opinion. Those were the type of people who really interested him. Um, he he wrote a phenomenal essay about uh, taking an ocean cruise vacation. Uh, it was called The Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. He spent seven days um, on a cruise ship. And in this essay, what really strikes you is his ability to encapsulate different types of people. Um, you know, people we may tangentially hear of in our day-to-day life, but we, we never get to know them personally. Well, he got to know them personally. Um, and his interests in people um, just come through in many layers. Uh, he, at some point, he tried to convert to Christianity, and he engaged um, a pastor at his local church and asked him many questions about the Bible, characters in the Bible, and the pastor told him that um, they really couldn't continue the religious training, his religious training, because he, he just had too many questions. So it, so he, he takes this ocean cruise vacation, and uh, this is one of the things he, he says about it. I have seen an all-red leisure suit with flared lapels. I have smelled suntan lotion spread over 2,100 pounds of hot flesh. I have been addressed as Mon in three different nations. I have seen 500 upscale Americans dance the electric slide. I have seen sunsets that look computer-enhanced. I have very briefly joined a Congo line. Um, And then later, he says, uh, I have heard upscale adult U.S. citizens ask the ship's guest relations desk whether snorkeling necessitates getting wet, whether the trap shooting will be held outside, whether the crew sleeps on board, and what time the midnight buffet is. So, you know, yes, he makes fun, he makes light of um, this this kind of entertainment and makes fun of some of these people, but he also... He sits down with them and has dinner with them. He engages them. He he tries to figure out what how they're having fun, and there's a real empathy that he both builds, you know, develops, and also struggles against because there there's this gut reaction he has to default to irony, and it's it's just a very fun essay. Um, I don't want to reveal too much, but there, there really is a hilarious bit about, uh, chocolate mints appearing on his pillow. So definitely check that out. Um, and I, I think, you know, in that essay, there's such great use of slang. I think that's a really a key element of his voice. 
the balance between highbrow versus vernacular. Um, and he always plays them against each other um, brilliantly. Um, you know, he, he has uses phrases like, spare me the chumpness about this. And he loves to use the, the word way as an adverb and typical of David Foster Wallace. He, he explains how in the 19th century, way was also used for a way in the sense of a great distance. So it's, it's a type of measurement. Um, so it, it's not too far off to use way the way he does it. Um, and so there's this unabashed nerdy love of language. He, he also has a great essay on the English language and he, um, loves to parse the way a phrase works. He says in this essay, I mean, you can't say where's it. So the choice is between where is it and where's it at. And the latter, a strong anapest, is prettier and trips off the tongue better. And then he, you know, he has, of course, footnotes saying, you know, an anapest is a metric foot composed of two short syllables followed by a long one, as in the word 17. Uh, at least I, that's the way I remember it. I mean, maybe I looked it up myself. Um, but they, there is something about reading him where you get into this mode where you want to find out the etymology of words. You want to find out... Um, why why his writing is funny and why his writing just says stuff in such a different way from any other writer. Um, and so his incredible ear for outsiders is really an incredible ear just generally. I mean, he is constantly listening to people, overhearing people. And when you read his fiction, um, it's very important, I think. I, I think this is probably the case with a lot of a lot of writers, but it's very important to read his fiction with complete concentration, or else you'll miss something. You'll you'll miss these little thoughts that, if you can capture them, feel admittedly like a bit of a puzzle. I mean, I'm not going to say that his writing is uh, always a puzzle. Because it can be emotional, but there is some there's a playfulness to fiction that you can miss very easily if you're not fully concentrating. Um, he he has a a fantastic piece on porn. Um, he went to the Adult Video Awards one year um, and hung out with journalists. And he befriended the uh, porn star Max Hardcore. And Max invited him um, and some other journalists back to his hotel room, Max's hotel room. And there were a couple of st porn starlets and a couple of B-girls, fluffer girls, uh, and other male porn stars. And there's a real normalization that Dave Foster Wallace does, but then he makes you very aware of it. 
And this is how he describes the mood in this hotel room. Um, there is also a complete, there is also a complex erotic tension. Because porn films' worlds are so sexualized, with everyone seemingly teetering right on the edge of coitus all the time, and it taking only the slightest nudge or excuse, a stalled elevator, an unlocked door, a cocked eyebrow, a firm handshake, to send everyone tumbling into a tangled mess of limbs and orifices, there's a bizarre unconscious expectation dread hope that this is what might happen in Max Hardcore's hotel room. Your correspondents here find it impossible to overemphasize that the fact that this is a delusion. In fact, it, of course, the unconscious expectation dread hope makes no more sense than it would make to, to be hanging out with doctors at a medical convention and to expect that at the slightest provocation, everyone in the room would tumble into a frenzy of MRIs and epidurals. And he, you know, he, he's wandering around just kind of taking it all in. Um, and he can definitely be laugh out funny, but there, there, there can be real truth. And it's, uh, he, he, there's such a quick shift he makes between humor and something that's disturbing. Um, he writes, 34-year-old porn actor Cal Jammer killed himself in 1995. Starlets Shauna Grant, Kelly, Nancy Kelly, Alex Jordan, and Savannah have all killed themselves in the last decade. Savannah and Jordan received AVN's Best Starlet Awards in 1991 and 1992, respectively. Savannah killed herself after getting mildly disfigured in a car accident. Alex Jordan is famous for having addressed her suicide note to her pet bird. And you, you hear that paragraph and you recognize the use of that last line for comic value, but it's he's very self-conscious. He's very consciously making that last line both work and not work. If you know, and if the more you read him, you you know the way he doesn't want his sentences to work because he thinks that that's really not the way we should be thinking about these porn stars. We shouldn't have this incredible. I mean, we 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 shouldn't just think of their deaths as tragedies. It's something more than that. It's something stranger than that. You know, it is still a tragedy. So, and he, you know, the theme of outsiders is is really interesting because he's a person who's very much struggled to socialize. Um, he found solace in alcohol and pot smoking. His parents actually tolerated him pot smoking um, in high school. And according to DT Max's bio, which I mentioned um in part one, just a fantastic bio, every love story is a ghost story. Um, David Foster Wallace would always smoke up before, often smoke up before he did his homework, which his parents okayed. Which, um, as a parent, <laughs> in, in any world where you're 
tolerating and understanding your kid, it, it is a little hard to grasp the idea of your kid smoking pot all the time before they do their homework. Um, but he was such a smart guy that even being half-baked, he could, he could get it done. Um, and I, I, it makes me think, I was chatting with a friend of mine about, you know, there's a lot to be said for adults uh, who have a drink or two to find that courage to socialize when they're not in the mood or if the context, the setting is one where they're a little out of, you know, out of their element. So you you realize kids don't have anything like that, you know. They they just kind of have to go headlong into that social situation. So um, what I admire about David Foster Wallace when it comes to socializing is he kept trying to socialize. There's a real, you know, when he was at Amherst, there are stories of him opening his window and yelling out, to friends or to anyone in particular about what a fun time he was having. And yes, that's awkward and um, meant ironically, but I think there is something there where he just wanted to belong and he was trying to be a college kid. So, and I don't think he would want to make, want us to make too much of that. I think he, that's another kind of, typical David Foster Wallace trope that, um, you know, you could overdo the, th the thinking about his moves. Um, and it, when we talk about Infinite Jest, there, there are some just classic little maneuvers he does, um, seeing the way the reader would think of his writing. Um, Let's talk uh, a little bit about his uh, forefathers and the kind of experimental fiction um, he ended up producing. Um, it's He writes in a very heightened style. It's almost like surrealism. It's definitely um, uh, not limited to a certain... Um, consistent, you know, genre. Um, but, you know, the kind of people he admired, like John Barth and Donald Barthamay and Pynchon, um, you can see that, you know, he loved their humor. He loved um, the way they took a concept and it kind of exhausted it. Um, and when people say like, oh, I like the idea of the story, but I don't like the execution, I think that's something that he really wanted to bridge to both like the story and like the idea. Um, his first novel, The Broom of the System, um, published when he, he wrote it when he was an undergrad at Amherst, and then he published it his first year or second year at while well, he was getting his MFA at the University of Arizona, um, it tells the story of a young woman who worries that she may, might exist only as a character in the story. Um, so immediately kind of, it sounds like a Bartholomew plot. Um, 
and I, I highly recommend the book. Very, very funny book. Her boyfriend, the, the the main character's name is Lenore. Her boyfriend is an editor of a literary journal, and is constantly being sent bad stories. And the stories, um, but there are three stories that fascinate him, and I to me that's the. That those are kind of the best parts of that book. These three crazy stories, um, and in those stories, again, the idea of exhausting a concept, trying to really get to the bottom of how people are connected, um, and to him, that was realistic fiction. That. Henry James or Jonathan Franzen's version of Henry James or Philip Roth's version of Henry James, that it didn't really engage the world. Um, so it, that the Broom of the System is really a great book to start with. Um, if if you, you know, I think the essays are how I fell in love with him, um, and uh, in terms of essays, I highly recommend. Starting with consider the lobster, um, but if you want to just dive into the fiction, I think you'd be pleasantly surprised by the broom of the system, um, and it it only grows on you. I've read it a second time after reading Infinite Jest, um, so I, I think you know we have to say something about his his suicide and and the kind of larger than life personality he was. Um, and I know Mary Carr deserves her own podcast, her own time, but, um, she did date David Foster Wallace or as she put it, slept with him a couple of times. Um, that was her distinction, but this, this is the way she described him. She, she met him in the nineties and she said, Data went into his mind, and it would just shoot off sparks. Wildly funny, unbelievable wattage, such a massive interest in and curiosity about his place in the world. He had more frames per second than the rest of us. He just never stopped. He was just constantly devouring the universe. Um, and, you know, when he, she tried to she was actually married at the time and ended up having an affair with him. Um, when he tried to, when she tried to break it off, he refused to accept that. And a slew of other things that David Foster Wallace um, would not be proud of and sounds actionable under the law. Uh, then followed, um, David Foster Wallace tried to buy a gun, um, tried to push Mary Carr out of a, Mary Carr out of a moving car, followed her five-year-old son from school to try to figure out where she lived after she had changed her number. Um, so the, the gun purchase was allegedly because he was going to kill Mary Carr's, uh, husband. So, and I, you know, I th I think, like any 
love story or romance or relationship, we 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 only get about two percent. We only know about two percent of what happened. So I'm not going to purport to say what did go on with them, but it, there was a real. There were fireworks with the two of them, and I think you know his suicide affected everyone around him, including Mary. And I thought we could hear from Mary's side of things. She wrote a poem after his suicide, which I really, really like. And I thought I'd read it here. It's called Suicide Suicide's Note. Uh, colon, an annual. I hope you've been taken up by Jesus, though so many decades have passed. So far apart we've grown, we'd grown, between love transmorgifying into hate, and those sad letters and phone calls, and your face vanishing into a noose, that I couldn't today name the gods you at the end worshipped, if any praise being impossible for the devoutly miserable, and screw my church, who'd roast in hell poor suffering bastards like you unable to bear the masks of their own faces. With words you sought to shape, a world alternate to the one that dared inscribe itself so ruthlessly across your eyes, for you could not, could never fully refute the actual or justify the sad heft of your body and earn your rightful space or pay for the parcels of oxygen you inherited. More than once you ask that I breathe into your lungs like the soprano in the opera. I love so my ghost might inhabit you, and you ingest my belief in your otherwise only probable soul. I wonder, does your death feel like a f- like failure to everybody who ever loved you, as if our collective CPR stopped too soon? The defib paddles lost charge, the corpse punished us by never sitting up, and forgive my conviction that every suicide's an asshole. There is a good reason I am not God, or I would cruelly smite the self-smitten. I just wanted to say, ha-ha, despite your best efforts. You are every second alive in a hard-gnawing way for all who breathed you deeply in each set of lungs, those rosy implanted wings, pink balloons, We sigh you out into air and watch you rise like rain. We're going to take a short break. Be back with a discussion of the Pale Camp. Mike Palindrome back. Um, we're going to talk about the Pale King, which, if people don't know about this uh, novel, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. It's David Foster Wallace. Some people call it David Foster Wallace's unfinished last novel. Um, some people don't really consider it his work. He, when he committed suicide in 2008, he left thousands of typed also handwritten pages um, 
lots of character sketches about the novel he was working on, which was about an IRS office and the friendships there. And some people say that the the book is about boredom, the nature of boredom. boredom. Um, he had taken accounting classes and read books on the IRS Internal Revenue Service Code. Um, and he went down to the IRS Center, I believe in Virginia. Um, maybe it's in D.C., I forget. But uh, And he met with people who um, were very welcoming. They He took tours there. He, 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 he chatted with some some historian slash uh, employees there and each time they recommended a book to him uh, he astounded them by revealing that not only had he read it but he had read some of the secondary sources Um, and he had become really a student of uh, the IRS code so he leaves thousands of pages behind purportedly a novel about the IRS and boredom. His wife, Karen Green, his agent, Bonnie Nadell, and his longtime editor at Little Brown, Michael Pitch. Um, the, the three of them got together and put this book together. Um, it was edited by mostly by Michael Pitch, but I think he, you know talked to Bonnie and Karen to try to figure out how these pages should come together. I believe there were about, um, some, some of the pages were very polished. Um, other pages were just standalone chapters and crucially David had not indicated a plan for the book's overall structure. Um, we can assume that he wanted something akin to Pale King. Uh, sorry, uh, he wanted the Pale King to be similar to Infinite Jest and um, have a non-linear linear structure, um, a challenging structure. Um, so, unfortunately, it left the three of them um, very few uh, hints as to how to structure this. So the way I read it and the way I recommend it be read, and it's a very important part of his his writings, um, and it should be read, is almost to read each chapter um, as like a mini story. Um, there's a chapter that I find very amusing, and it goes like this. It's chapter 25. Irrelevant, which he has in quotes. Irrelevant, Chris Fogel turns a page. Howard Cardwell turns a page. Ken Wax turns a page. Matt Redgate turns a page. Groovy Bruce Channing attaches a form to a file. Ann Williams turns a page. Anand Singh turns two pages at once by mistake and turns one back, which makes a slightly different sound. David Kusk turns a page. Sandra Pounder turns a page. Robert Atkins turns two separate pages of two separate files at the same time. Ken Wax turns a page. Lane Dean Jr. turns a page. Olive Borden turns a page. Chris Acquisitopis 
turns the page. David Cusk turns the page. So it, it goes on and on and on. And I, I James Lasden, the novelist who's, um, who wrote The Horned Man, a novella, and also wrote Besiege, the short story that became a Bertolucci film. Um, just an, a really elegant short story writer. I really like his stuff. He reviewed Pale King and The Guardian, and um, he noted this. There is a section in double-entry columns that consists of little more than a room full of examiners slightly turning the pages of tax returns. It is one of the strangest, saddest, most haunting things I've ever read. And I, I think, you know, when, like I mentioned in part one, um, my to read, to talk about David Foster Wallace is really to, you know, want to read him. And Lasden's review really does it justice. Um, he goes on to say, and rather than, you know, try to sum it up, I, I think it's just nice to hear Lasden's voice as he says this is, the subject matter is as narrowly focused as that of Infinite Jest was richly profuse. It is, in a word, boredom. Boredom and its various effects on the spirit, ranging from suicidal despair. Suicide was a constant motif in Wallace's work. To the transcendent power of concentration. The latter is periodically held up as the nearest thing to heroism left in a world where there are no more frontiers to push back. And all that remains to challenge the aspiring hero is the drudgery of organizing data enduring tedium over real time in a confined space one character remarks is what real courage is um and so you know it, it, the book is really a lot of fun just kind of jumping around there's a chapter about and some of this was excerpted in the new yorker the more polished pieces um there's a chapter about uh, a teenage couple and um, they're trying to decide what to do with, you know, uh, the girl is pregnant. They're trying to decide what to do. And they're, they're, they're Christian, um, which is a really beautiful chapter. There's also a chapter about a guy who has committed his life is very Kafka-esque I, I know people don't overuse that term but this chapter really is about a guy who tries to lick um, every inch of his body and you know is quite successful doing the front the legs the arms and then really struggling with the back and does a fair bit of the back but cannot get to the back of his neck um, so uh, very mesmerizing chapter. There's also a chapter where David Foster Wallace interjects, um, probably for the first time in his fiction. It, it's the chapter is chapter nine, and it's called "Author's Forward." And it goes, "Author here, meaning the real author, the living." human holding the pencil, not some abstract narrative persona. Granted, there is sometimes, there sometimes is such a persona in the Pale King, um, but that's mainly a pro forma statutory construct, 
an entity that exists just for legal and commercial purposes, rather like a corporation. It has no direct provable connection to me as a person, but this right here is me as in the real person, David Wallace, age 40, social security number 9750420012, addressing you as my form 8829 deductible home office at 725 Indian Hill Boulevard, Claremont 91711, California, on this fifth day of spring 2005 to inform you of the following. All of this is true. This book is really true. I obviously need to explain. Um, but, you know, as much as you have the polished chapters, you do have chapters where you you really appreciate his editing abilities. And I think one of the things that I'll never forget about him in interviews is he said that he had always been a hard worker, you know, a very good student. Um, whenever he was given a task, he, he would really drill it to ground, drill down, try to find, you know, everything he could about something. Um, but he had never worked as hard as he did editing Infinite Jest. And I think that's very telling about the kind of devotion he had to his work and the editing. And there are passages in The Pale King where you, you just feel like, I don't think he would have mandated the publishing, the publication of some of these chapters. And I wrote in the margins um, things like um, trying my patience or revise or delete. Um, I'm bored here. I'm giving up here. This is losing me. But I, I stuck with it, and I think, you know, it, it, you, you are rewarded ultimately by this chapter that I am going to say is, is some of his finest writing. It's chapter 46. Um, there's a, a woman at the IRS, Meredith Rand, who is beautiful. And the IRS workers, mostly men, um, get tongue-tied around her, get you know, or say very aggressive things to her, and they they don't know how to behave, and none of them are uh, handsome enough to be in her league. And she's married anyway, and so they have a weekly happy hour. And whenever her husband is out of town, she comes to it, and when she's there the whole dynamic is different. Um, all the men uh, behave differently. All the women um, have to decide whether they're, they accept her or they're, they're going to act aloof. Um, and there's a real palpable uh, tension whenever she's there. So everyone is affected except for one guy, Shane Drinian. Um, and mm, he's the kind of guy nobody really pays attention to. Nobody notices. Um, but Meredith notices. And so one happy hour, um, she goes over to him. And then they proceed to have this incredible 40-page conversation. Um, and some people have said that you know, th 
this is really, you know, the heart of David Foster Wallace, this conversation between Meredith and Shane. Um, so Shane is very literal. I mean, Mer Meredith um, tries to talk to him and Shane, um, it, it's not even just emotionless because he, he has emotions, but he's, he's um, so much in his head. This is the way he sounds. Um, let's see, let's see. Where's a good moment? Well, I guess we should just dive in. All right, I'll play the little game here. Meredith Rand says, do you think I'm pretty? Yes. Do you find me attractive? Well, do you? And then Shane goes, I find that question confusing. I've heard it in movies and read it in books. It's strangely phrased. There's something confusing about it. You see, it seems to ask for an objective opinion as to whether the person you're talking to would would describe you as attractive. From the context, it usually appears in though, it seems almost always to be a way of asking whether the person you're talking to is sexually attracted to you. Meredith Rand says, well, sometimes you have to let the roundabout way of saying things pass, don't you? Some things can't be said straight out, or it's just too gross. Can you imagine someone saying, are you sexually attracted to me? Actually, yes, I can, Shane says. But it'd be awfully uncomfortable to ask it that way, wouldn't it? Meredith asks. I can understand why it would be uncomfortable or even unpleasant, especially if the other person weren't, wasn't sexually attracted, Shane says. I'm fairly sure that packed into a straightforward question is the suggestion that the asker is sexually attracted to the other person and wants to know whether the feeling is reciprocated. So yes, this means I was wrong. There are questions or assumptions also packed into the underlying question, too. You're correct. The business of sexual attraction seems to be a subject that it's not possible to be wholly straightforward in talking about. And why do you think that is? Meredith asks. And Shane says, I think it's probably because direct sexual rejection is intensely unpleasant for people and the less directly you express information about your sexual attraction to someone, the less directly you feel rejected if there is no corresponding expression of attraction. <laughs> and, and here Meredith says, there's something kind of tiring about you, Rand observes, talking to you. And then she goes, it's like you're both interesting and really boring at the same time. And so, and it goes on and on. It's, it's one of the funniest things I've ever read. And if, if you have a chance, if you're at the bookstore and you're looking for a book to buy, you may not buy The Pale King, but just turn to page 46 and read this conversation or start it and, um, report back to me. Tell me if, if you don't find it hilarious. Um, so people have said, you know, Shane is David Foster Wallace. Um, Shane is this literal, hyper self-aware guy. But I, I would say actually that, and so other people have said this, is that Meredith is actually David Foster Wallace. 
Um, he's, she's kind of like this idealized version of David Foster Wallace. And this conversation is very much a conversation um, between two parts, two sides of his personality. Um, and then, you know, without revealing what happens in this, um, well, first let me read you, the, the, the buildup is great, so let me read you this a little bit. Um, Meredith says, can I say that one of the reasons you come off as a little boring is you don't seem like you have any sense of what the real topic of conversation is. This stuff doesn't have anything to do with what we were just talking about, does it? Um, it the build-up to this is to this incredible secret. And it is incredible. It's fantastic. It's um, You can't believe what unfolds between Meredith and Shane. Um, and I, I just think, you know, it, it, it is what he was capable of as a writer that no one else really was, that he could um, twist these characters around and they're they're hyper real. They're you know they're comical. They're they're they're. I think people have said his characters don't change. They're kind of self determined. It doesn't matter. It's it's just a brilliant uh, chapter. So I'll leave Pale King to you guys to take it or leave it I think the chapters I, I, I would take the book but I, I meant like the chapters take it or leave it and um, maybe to leave on a high note um, Karen Green his wife has given some interviews and talked about um, you know her her life together with him and you, just just really really funny uh, little anecdotes. So she said that she knew it was love when Dave, David agreed to go to Hawaii with her early in the relationship because uh, he hated to fly and he he had a fear of sharks. So uh, Green says that while she was in the ocean, Wallace would routinely stand on the shore yelling anecdotal statistics about shark attacks at her. Um, uh, and he, she, she's been asked about suicide. Uh, I think, I believe that David's aunt or great aunt committed suicide. And, um, there was another suicide in, in his family. And so she was asked about, um, you know, his take on death. And she said, uh, he couldn't bear the idea of his dogs dying and he used to say to me all the time at night don't die Green paused for a long time that's a hard thing to think about she says it is hard to remember tender things tenderly
Okay, there we go. I hope you enjoyed that. My thanks to Mike Palindrome, as always, for his insight and effort. Taking on David Foster Wallace. My thanks to listener Ted for bringing us some sunshine on a cloudy day. And my thanks to you, good people, the listeners, for helping to make this little show the number one literature podcast of 2019, as chosen by the good people at Feedspot. I'm actually not sure if they're people. The good people slash possibly algorithms at Feedspot. And my apologies to JK for being forced to live in my shadow. Hopefully she will find some joy, a little modicum of joy in the hundreds of millions of books she has sold or the worldwide fame she enjoys or her status as one of the richest women in the world. Small comforts, I know. Might have to buy her a cup of tea this August. I feel like I owe her that much at least. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.